Hello, and welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. Podcasting has enjoyed a resurgence in popularity in recent years. Here on the Longevity Now podcast, we rely mostly on the Longevity Forum to highlight new episodes. You won't hear me imploring you to smash the like button or click the share icon or the subscription icon. We don't have an official sponsor or third-party crowdfunding support. This podcast is made possible by the great members of Longevity who make small yearly donations. That's it. That being said, if you're listening, it wouldn't hurt to share the Longevity Now podcast out there in social media and new tech platforms that are popping up recently. As I mentioned at the end of the last podcast, not everyone has the financial means to support life extension research, but everyone has the means to spread the word. We have a wide range of very interesting topics and guests, and many of them provide insights into the latest breakthroughs here on the podcast. But there's also often some very practical and valuable advice that you can put into use right now in order to get healthy, reverse some aspects of aging, and feel great. The guest of this episode is someone who has bent the aging curve in his favor. For years, he has tracked his eating and lifestyle habits and found a path to staying young. Dr. Michael Lusgarten's biological age is much less than his chronological age, and he looks the part. Find out what he has to say about this journey and how you might do the same. And now let's welcome to the podcast Dr. Michael Lustgarten, an assistant professor at the Tufts University Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging. Hello. Hey, Justin. Well, for those that might not have seen some of your videos out there on YouTube or some of your background, why don't you give us a little introduction of how you got started in your current field and your kind of biohacking experimentation? As a scientist, or we just jump into the biohacking side? Well, let's go to the scientist's angle first. Yeah. So I've always been interested in optimal health and fitness and longevity. You know, it started as a teenager reading bodybuilding magazines and, uh, you know, having an interest in nutrition, but really not having a clue of what to eat. So at some point in my twenties, I, uh, went back to school to learn more about biochemistry because my first university degree was not in, in a science. It was in uh, English literature, which didn't help me at all on this journey. So yeah, I, I went back and studied biochemistry with the goal of, uh, you know, taking a deeper dive beyond just traditional, you know, health and fitness. What's the biochemistry of aging, you know, because I've said this many times in my videos, and, and, and it's the central premise of basically my existence. Aging and disease are biochemical processes that happen over many decades. So if you track well-established biomarkers of organ and systemic health, in theory, you can identify problems where they become big problems, and you can delay disease risk and maximize health and potentially longevity. So in order to do that, I went back to school, got a biochemistry degree, and then I went to graduate school to study uh, basically aging, physiology of aging. You know, one step led to another. So here I am at Tufts studying metabolome, the blood metabolome, which is as many circulating metabolites as possible and how they relate to muscle mass and function. But then also that evolved into the microbiome. So the scientist side of my life is uh, studying basically, you know, what's going on in the blood and what's going on in the gut and how it relates to muscle in older adults. So alongside that, you know, parallel as a parallel path, this interest in optimizing health and, and longevity Somewhere around 2009, I started recording all of my yearly blood test results from my doctor. Again, based on this idea, aging and disease as a you know, biochemical process that happens over many decades. So I was only going to the doctor once a year, recording all my data, not really uh, doing a deep dive, even in the published literature about what's optimal for each of these things. And when I say the things that I was measuring, you know, these are things you get at a sta standard yearly physical. There, there weren't any special fancy tests, you know liver function, kidney function, lipid profile, et cetera. So, but I was recording it. And then um, somewhere around 2015, so six years later, after going, you know, recording my data about once a year, I had the idea that, you know, this just isn't enough data. One time point once a year, it's interesting. And, you know, I can kind of make dietary changes to see how things may change, but I wasn't being very scientific about it. So in 2015, I made the decision, I'm going to start tracking my diet. I'm going to weigh everything that goes in and uh, so I have a food scale. I've been weighing literally everything. Uh, if I eat out somewhere, if I get a slice of pizza or, or something like that, I have to estimate clearly, but those are rare events. So tracking everything in my diet, tracking everything in terms of supplements, 
for the ones that I do take and then blood testing more often, uh, up to six times a year. So over the past six and a half years, since 2015, I have 35 blood tests for, again, the standard chemistry panel, the CBC to the complete blood count, the things you would normally get at a doctor's visit with a few extra add-ons, things that may be specific for, for okay. me. And I've been, I basically had a blog uh, in 2010, but it wasn't until a couple of years ago where I was like, you know, I just need to get on, get on YouTube and start putting these in videos, easy, easy to digest, you know, little mini short presentations and, you know, document it there. Whereas before I was documenting it on, on my blog. So it's funny because, you know, the viewership is probably six X, six or seven X on YouTube. So there's a, well, yeah. And I would say your videos are in depth enough that you're not missing a lot. If you weren't reading it, you know, a lot of times you can put a lot more detail and graphs and charts. And if you're a good reader, you can get a lot more out of it, but your videos, I, I would have to compliment you are very good and uh, provide a lot Thanks. of great information. Now, one Thanks, thing I would like to ask you about before we get into a few other interesting questions, something that you just mentioned about that once a year measurement mm, wasn't good enough, right? I remember a fellow who worked for the Kronos Aging research uh, lab in Arizona. And this was way back in the early 2000, maybe 2005. Sadly, he did yeah. die of cancer, um, but he was uh, testing people. And I remember talking to him and asking him this specifically. I said, well, now we have a lot more technology. We can measure things on a monthly scale, daily scale, even, you know, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, you can measure different biological markers. And I said, well, isn't that valuable? And he said, if you want to measure aging over time, the most valuable time of doing that is once a year. He said, anything less than that, and you're just getting a bunch of noise from what you eat, from your exercise, from your sleep schedule, from your stress that you get in life, and you're just getting a bunch of noisy data. And he said, probably once a year. Now, that was quite a few years ago. Maybe thoughts have changed on that, but what are your thoughts on that? So I know exactly who you're talking about. Because, oh, you do? Okay. Uh, after I got my PhD, I interviewed with Chris Heward. At oh, Heward, yeah. Because at the time, that's that was basically the only company that cared about it with as much passion as I have for this. And along those lines of, you know, basically biohacking aging. So I completely disagree with the once a year. Anything more than once a year is going to involve noise. I'd argue once a year is the most amount of noise. I've tested six times a year for the past two years. This, this year, I'm planning on getting it up to seven or eight. Uh, but I'm trying to take it slowly because once I get to, if it's seven, I want to stay at seven. If it's eight, I want to stay at eight. I want to be consistent. I don't want to go to six, then maybe four. Then, you know, I'm trying to, you know, trying to be consistent with it. But by measuring every, for me, every two months, I have clients that do it every month. And, uh, you know, and there's probably a lower limit too, because I don't know, you know, what the stress of poking your veins once a month, I don't know that that would be good for long-term vascular health. And I, and I don't even know if there is a, a right answer to that. So let's break it down. In terms of a two-month span, sure, there's going to be variability. I track my fitness metrics, you know, uh, heart rate variability, resting heart rate. So that can kind of capture some of, and my workouts are standardized. I have standardized sets and reps for all of the movements that I do. My workouts are basically mirror images of, of each other every single time I do them. So that's standardized. Things like trying to take as, as complete of a rest day before the blood test, because obviously if I exercise on the day before a blood test, and I have 10 data points with exercise on the day before and 10 data points with no exercise the day before, there's going to be variability in the data. So almost all of my data, uh, maybe except for one day, I didn't have enough rest from a strong, tough workout two days earlier. Almost all of it is exclusively like completely sedentary on the day before a test. So I've minimized that variability. Now I'm recording, remember all, everything in my diet. Like, so if I blood test on day one and blood test on day 60, I have a 59 day period for diet that will correspond to the blood test on day 60. So because I'm weighing all my food, I'm going to get as close to accurate as possible as the overall diet composition, the grams of each food. So now I've minimized dietary variability. So there is going to be variability, but you know, I, I've seen people where they'll blood test often, but they don't measure anything carefully in their diet. So there's going to be too much variability there and they're going to have wide swings in their data. Now, I do have a range of my own data values, you know, for each biomarker, but I'm, I'm literally attempting to minimize as much variability as I can by quantifying my diet, by, you know, weighing everything and quantifying my fitness metrics. So I, I totally disagree with Chris. It's interesting because I was obviously a big fan of Chris Hewitt. And it was, and it was many, many years ago before, you know, some of the new testing methodologies were just coming online. So he might have changed his opinion eventually. I don't know, because uh, when I interviewed with him, he said something like, uh, 
I don't know if I like you yet. And I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> man, how's that possible? How is that possible? But then I didn't know about his philosophy on, you know, once you're testing and anything more than that is noise. To me, the opposite would be true. If you're, how would you know, how would you know that one data point out of 365 is representative of anything? So, yeah, he might've been looking at more of bulk measurements of biological age or functional aging and and just that over time you see those changes and that's the data set that they had back then uh you know you had long-term data sets where you saw slow changes so perhaps that's where that came from yeah you know Cronus was one of the few companies that was going after that stuff uh, yeah. and I, I you know there are still very few companies even though that there are companies that purport to tell you exactly what to eat based on some blood sample or a uh, stool sample it's based on big population data. And I've said this a billion times, but all published studies, all randomized controlled trials, all large epidemiological studies with millions of people, they need to be evaluated at the individual level. One can't assume that a mouse study will work for you. You know, will rapamycin work for me? Will, will this much B12 work for me? It has to be evaluated. But most people, unfortunately, right now, do it based on hope. I see this study, it did this, I'm going to take it. It'll probably do that for me. And then they're taking these multi-cocktail, multi-component cocktails where no animal study has even evaluated multi, or well, at least not in these senolytics. So testing is essential to this process. And even for you know clients that I have that, I, that want to take supplements, I'll say, look, it's not just dietary tracking. If you track your supplement intake with enough blood test data, we can see if those supplements are detrimental, neutral, or beneficial. And then we could even get towards what's the optimal dose. But again, it's objectively based. It's based on objective data rather than, well, we're going to take this milligram per kilogram dose because that's what worked in an animal study. You have to actually evaluate it, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, And before we get into more of that, we'll talk more about uh, your regimen and the testing and everything. But how about a little bit about your current research at the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging? Uh, From what I've read, it has to do a lot with uh, elderly populations and sarcopenia. And that's something that a lot of our listeners are in that age range where they have to worry about uh, muscular skeletal problems. And I think it's a kind of an underappreciated part of aging. You know, uh, there's an old saying, you know, once you break a hip, you're pretty much done, you know, or something like that. Or once you can't, once you're less mobile, your body declines more rapidly. Uh, how is your current research on sarcopenia going? Have you found anything interesting or any kind of interventions that pop out to you? Yeah. So in a few months, I just got IRB approval to start a study. It's my study. We're going to feed older adults different amounts of soluble fiber. So all fiber is not the same. They're soluble, which is fermented by the gut bacteria to make quote unquote beneficial metabolites that are known as short chain fatty acids. And then there's insoluble fiber, which is poorly fermented. It's, it's uh, not fermented at the same magnitude as soluble fiber. So that isn't to say insoluble fiber is irrelevant for health, but my focus is on soluble fiber because most people, especially older adults eat very low fiber diets, 20 grams or so per day. And even their, their soluble fiber intake is even lower. Uh, you know, somewhere between two and eight grams per day. Now, there's no RDA for how much soluble fiber people should eat for quote unquote optimal health or even optimal muscle health. So uh, the study that's going to start up in a couple months is is uh, giving two groups of older adults, one group, a very high soluble fiber diet. So it's basically going to be enriched vegetables, which are per calorie, the highest content of soluble fiber per calorie relative to the control group, which is just going to get basically the USDA standard recommendations for like 14 grams of fiber per 1000 calories, which probably is going to be a benefit over what people are already eating. So nonetheless, the soluble fiber group is going to have about four to five times higher the soluble fiber content of the control group. Now, the reason that's the study is because there's a emerging evidence for a gut muscle axis, the impact of the gut microbiome on muscle. Now, most of this data has been done in animal models and by supplementing these short chain fatty acids to mice, and then they have improved muscle-related measures, whether it's muscle mass you know, or muscle strength. But the evidence in humans is lacking. So we're going to give the high soluble fiber diet based on the hypothesis that the older adults that get that, they're going to have an increased amount of these short-chain fatty acids produced by their gut bacteria that will increase levels in the blood. And then if those short-chain fatty acids play a causative role in impacting muscle in people, those people should have an improvement in muscle mass, muscle composition, which is the amount of fat in muscle, and potentially muscle function. So it's going to be a 12-week study. So yeah, we're going to start recruitment in the um, sometime in the late spring, early summer of this okay. year. And uh, 
yeah. So, but science is slow. It's going to take science is slow. I know. Yeah. And then one thing that pops in my head though, with this particular study is that the gut microbiome does change as we age, it becomes less efficient, it becomes dysregulated. Yeah. Have you thought about that variability or that variable in this particular study that even if you do feed some people a high soluble fiber diet, maybe their gut microbiome isn't going to create as much as you think uh, of the uh, metabolite. That's definitely possible. But uh, in order to address that, it's it's important to understand uh, mechanisms for why the gut microbiome composition it changes during aging. And a big part of that is the pH, the acidity of the colon. So the short chain fatty acids, as in their name, they're acids. So when their concentrations are high enough, they acidify the colon. And what that does is colon acidification minimizes the ability of quote unquote, these pathogenic bacteria, which increase during aging to grow. So unfortunately, because most people are eating fiber deficient or fi low fiber diets, especially soluble fiber, it's possible that uh, it's easier for these pathobionts or these quote unquote bad bacteria to bloom during aging because there's a, there's a, there's a paucity of fiber and correspondingly the short chain fatty acids in the, uh, in, in the gut. So going to measure those things. We're going to measure gut, gut microbiome composition, the short chain fatty acids in the stool and the blood. All you would expect then that the beneficial microbiota would increase with a higher soluble fiber diet. I think that and there then, has been a little research in that anyway in the past, hasn't there? Yeah. 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 And then those quote unquote beneficial, those fiber degrading uh, bacteria will produce more of these short chain fatty acids. The short chain fatty acids will limit the growth of these or decrease the amounts of the path pathogenic bacteria. One of them in particular is known as enterobacteria. And then we'd expect less enterobacteria and less of their metabolic products, which have also been shown to negatively affect muscle-related measures. So on, on the one hand, high-soluble fiber, more short-chain fatty acids, which have been shown independently to improve muscle. And then the short-chain fatty acids limit the growth of the quote-unquote bad bacteria, which also produce metabolites that negatively affect. So it could be a double whammy where we're getting the short chains and less of these bad bacterial, quote unquote, bad bacterial metabolic products with the net effect being overall positive on muscle, independent of exercise. So whether that happens, we'll find out. Interestingly too, I just got a congratulations email about two weeks ago that uh, basically testing the same hypothesis only in aged mice, which takes away some of the variability because in human studies, you know, so we're going to basically feed the older adults, the entire diet. You know, I designed both the control diet and the intervention diet. So we're going to, you know, it's, we're going to spend a, a significant amount of money for 12 weeks, giving people literally all of the food. Now, the next challenge is they, they hopefully will eat it all, right? Because if the high soluble fiber group is four X higher in soluble fiber than the controls, but they only eat half of what they are given and then eat some other junk that they're not supposed to, I can't stop them from doing that, you know? So yeah, all the fine details of uh, researching with live human, human <laughs> subjects, right? Yeah. But as I mentioned, fortunately, I got the go-ahead for a study, the uh, JAX lab, which means that I, I basically set up the premise and they're going to do the work, but it's testing the same hypothesis. Does a high soluble fiber diet positively impact the gut muscle axis and in aged mice? So that takes away most of the variability from the human study. So if it works in the animals and we see compliance issues in the humans, well, maybe that would suggest if the humans are more compliant, and this is a worst case scenario that maybe we'd see some better outcomes. So uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see Great. how it goes. Okay. Well, one side discussion, uh, when you were talking there, you mentioned the USDA and the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging often informs public policy, right? Can you say something about the history of the US food pyramid? Many people have remarked that in the past, how the heck did grains and sweets and just carbohydrates dominate that thing for so long? And now yeah. it slowly has come into more healthy diet, I guess you could say. Yeah, there's still some questionable things that are sure. recommended, like fruit juices. Fruit juices would never be on my list, or there are some problems with it. It's, I mean, it seems it has gotten yeah. much better over the there's, years. But there's, there's still general recommendations. I don't want to poop on the USDA food pyramid or my plate, but it comes back to this idea of what is the optimal diet at the individual level? Is it based on general recommendations? Can some people, as they claim, who basically eat nothing but meat, have optimal health and potentially longevity? I'm not here to promote a carnivore diet, believe me, don't get me wrong. But if someone on a carnivore diet, which is completely the opposite of the USDA food pyramid and the, uh, and the MyPlate, if they show me their blood test variables, and I mean 
not just glucose or lipid panel, which is what a lot of carnivore types seem to show, but if you can show me complete data, you know, your kidney function, liver function, immune cells, inflammation, biological age based on recent biological age metrics like Levine's PhenoAge or aging.ai, which have been peer reviewed and published. If you can show me your data looks really good, maybe for your genetic background, that's fine, right? So I'm open-minded to the idea that, you know, there is no one size fits all diet. Uh, sure. And if you can show me the data, you know, I'm more than happy to say congratulations, you know. Well, speaking about that, uh, could you kind of encapsulate your regimen, your eating habits? I mean, there are so many different ways to categorize what type of food you eat, but then also if there is any kind of intermittent fasting, which is uh, come in vogue recently, how would you encapsulate your regimen? Up until this recent blood test, which was on Monday of last week, and it's basically my best I mean, it's just a coincidence. It's my best biological age results, uh, basically for using Levine's phenomage. Uh, it's my lowest score in 18 tests, a uh, 16 test. And using aging.ai, it's tied for my lowest over 31 tests. Let's pause so, right here. Uh, your biological age versus your chronological age. What do you got? Yeah. So chronological age is how many times you've gone around the sun yes. once a year. Your biological age is some year... Uh, some some year uh, that could be younger, the same, or older than your chronological age, based on a composite measure of blood biomarkers. And these weren't arbitrarily selected. Large epidemiological studies were used with an unbiased approach, meaning you know based on the statistics for a biomarker group that was best able to predict chronological age. And then this was published. So and they've got you know these biomarker composites or metrics of biological age have strong correlations with chronological age. So. Just to mention, it was like Levine's phenoage and aging.ai. Now, Levine's phenoage is pretty close to the correlation for the best epigenetic clocks for their prediction with biological age. So most people are hot on the epigenetic age trail, but what they maybe don't know is that the blood-based biomarker clocks that are based on these clinically you know, relevant biomarkers that are commonly measured have as strong of a correlation with chronological age as the best epigenetic clocks. Now, my data may not be representative. I'm like the outlier here because I'm yes. quantifying everything and I'm, and I'm trying different interventions to try to optimize these things over time. So many times things will go in the wrong direction and then I've got to reevaluate the correlations and see what went wrong and what's causing that so that I can, but it, during that process, I learn what may impact each biomarker and then I can course correct. It's, it's kind of like I'm my own neural net, you know, like a self-driving <laughs> car that gets more data uses that data to re-evaluate the prediction and then to attempt a different intervention to get better the next time. So what's your chronological age? 49. 49 and as of yesterday. Levin's phenotypic age? So up until this test, over 15 tests, my average, and the reason I say my average is, is again, because many people will say, oh, I have one test and this is my score, but is that really representative? So over the past 15 tests before this test, my average biological age reduction was 12.2 years. So 49, I'd get values between, you know, 35 and 37, you know, as this is over a couple of years span for this test, it's my best ever 16.4 years younger. Uh, and for aging.ai, again, chronological age is 49, aging.ai 26. So 23 years younger. These are for pheno age. It's the best that I've gotten for aging.ai. As I mentioned, that's tied for my best ever, but that was 2016. So it'd been five years since I saw 26. Now, is this just a random a random effect, or have I figured out what the optimal diet may be for me? And that diet, how would you categorize that diet? What, yes. you know, a lot of people are familiar with a lot of the fad diets and the carnivore diet and different things, vegetarian, vegan. Uh, what is yours closest to? It's a mix. I'm not a vegan. I've tried that. And I actually have a little bit of data as a vegan in the blood test panel, you know, the 35 tests. I've gone very low animal food intake. I've gone relatively higher fat, but the keto and high fat types will say I didn't go high enough. So for me, high fat was 117 grams per day, which is a thousand calories, essentially about a thousand calories from fat. So my average calorie intake over the past uh, six or seven years has been 2,500. So that's about a 40% of my total calories from fat. Now that was at the highest and it was through rigorous trial and error to find out that going that high, which again, for many people that are keto or on a high fat diet, that's not high at all for them. You know, all, you know, 80% of their diet from fat, maybe, you know, that's what they're eating that I can't go up that high. My blood test stuff doesn't support that as a, as a 
valid approach for optimizing the biomarkers. So in terms of composition, it's probably about, if I was looking at my data, but I'm doing this off the top of my head, 33% fat, but then fat is not all the same. There's mono, there's omega-3, there's omega-6, there's saturated fatty acids. I've even got targets for each of those now where, you know, how much I'm aiming for each day. So about 33% calories from fat. And right now that's about 85 grams of fat per day. Not, not my highest, 117. And I'll get into why, the why behind that in a minute. Protein is uh, 100 to 105 grams per day. And that's about 18 or so percent of my calories. And then the rest is from carbohydrates. Now, most people here are carbohydrates. They think chips and cookies and cakes and all this other trash. And if I could, you know, I'd probably eat that stuff too. But for me, I'm like a junk foodaholic. So I have to be very careful with that stuff. So when I do eat junk, I, I do it basically on the day of the blood test after I blood tested, like quote unquote, a celebration, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and, and the day after. And then after that, I shut it down. I have to turn it off completely because then I'll start to get feelings like, oh, I want to eat a little bit of Nutella. I want to eat a little bit of a uh, Reese's peanut butter cup. So if I do it for a day or two after my blood test, I can turn it off basically for about six weeks for six to eight weeks. Until so you get uh, complex carbs from, uh, from your vegetables, from fruits and things like that, right? That are uh, yeah, high in yeah, fiber and everything. Yeah. I forgot to mention fiber too as a macro. So uh, 85 grams per day, 25 of that from soluble fiber. So interestingly, you know, one could term the diet that we're going to feed to these older adults as the Mike diet, because it's yeah. 25 grams of fiber. It's about four X higher than the average American intake. So now that said, I didn't come to those amounts arbitrarily. This is through... So looking at the correlations for each of my dietary components, both macronutrients and even micronutrients, you know, so, so looking at correlations for that with all of the blood biomarkers. So again, I have up to 35 blood tests and I've called them the big picture biomarkers, you know, markers representative of kidney function, liver function, red blood cells, immune cells, et cetera. And by looking at correlations between those two, the, the macro and micronutrients and the blood biomarkers. Not only am I attempting to optimize the blood biomarkers, but I get closer to optimizing my own diet. Uh, it's like iron sharpens iron. So just as an example, so for me, I mentioned I went up to a 117 grams of fat per day. And I noticed that my glucose was in the 90s, 90 milligrams per deciliter for 15 consecutive measurements. This is two plus years in a row of 90s for glucose. Now, glucose increases during aging. And relatively higher levels, so amounts higher than 94, are associated with an increased all-cause mortality risk. So this is clearly going in the wrong direction. So immediately I go to my correlations and I try to see what, what's potentially impacting it. And then I've tried different interventions. So in my correlations, the strongest correlation was for my total fat intake and also my protein intake. So my protein intake has been as high as about 150 grams per day because that was significantly correlated with higher glucose, I've cut that down right to now where it is about 105 grams per day. And similarly, the, the fat intake, because my fat is so strongly correlated with blood glucose, I've cut that down. And as I've cut that down for this blood test, I got back into the 80s for the first time on glucose in 16 measurements. Now, the big question is, is this a fluke? Is this, is this something I'm going to be able to replicate? So to do that, the exact diet composition that I did for this test, I'm going to do for the next test. And if it's diet that caused these phenomenal data, and again, I say phenomenal, I, I don't throw words around like that loosely. I would say it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs> from what I've um, seen from other people's results. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So if it is diet that's causing these you know, phenomenal, and again, I, I don't get hung up just on the biological age scores. I'm also tracking each of the individual biomarkers and how they change during aging and all cause mortality risk. So it's easy to get lost in the score, but knowing how you know, how the engine works on the car is important too. So with, with that in mind, if I reduce my fat intake and I reduce my protein intake as the two strongest correlates with glucose, blood glucose, will that make other biomarkers worse? Because I don't want to make one biomarker better and six worse. So that's where I go to the evaluation of the big picture biomarkers. And I look to see the net correlative effect. If I reduce fat intake, will the overall correlative effect be positive, neutral, or negative? And if the overall effect on these 20 or so biomarkers that I call the big picture biomarkers is negative, then I wouldn't have cut total fat intake. But because there was a net correlative effect that suggested I would get a, a, system, a positive systemic effect, not just glucose effect, I cut my fat intake from 117 to I think 84 grams per day on for this test, for the rich dietary period that corresponded to this test, which was 42 days. So 
Okay. And then it sounds like it, with measuring your food and keeping track of all the biomarkers and different things and the correlations, it might take quite a bit of time to replicate what you're doing. I mean, you're obviously you're, uh, an assistant professor and you've got this very uh, strict measurement regimen and the food regimen. Uh, what kind of time requirements, if someone was going to try to do something like this, how much time out of your day does it take? Or once you've gotten going and rolling with it for a while, is it just very smooth process? Yeah. So there is a little bit of time in preparation, but I've gotten to the point where I eat a pretty standardized diet. Like I have foods that I enjoy eating. For example, my diet is rich and I, I post full diet composition in my videos. For example, Great. I did blood test number six in 2021. What's my diet? Like that was uh, one month or two months ago. I posted that and I, and I literally go through you know, the full composition in terms of how many grams of each food and actually some why behind why they're in there. You know, for example, carotenoids, relatively higher blood levels of carotenoids, which is not just one thing. It's alpha and beta carotene, lutein, zeaxanthin, lycopene, et cetera. Relatively higher blood levels of that is associated with a younger epigenetic age. So to me, it makes sense to have, you know, carotenoids enriched in the diet. So atop my top 10 or 12 foods are foods that are enriched in each of the individual carotenoids. So, but even that said, being married to the published literature, it's a good start. But again, you have to evaluate, are these correlation between these individual carotenoids, are they actually net beneficial for me or not? And in some cases, I've reduced intake of certain foods while increasing intake of other foods. So, but yeah, I post full diet composition there, including my macros and micros in each video. And I'm planning on making an update for this blood test coming in, you know, in a week or two. So to answer your question about then how long does it take me every day to do this? So there is some food, food preparation, you know, or, or planning in terms of what am I going to eat the next day? I plan it out the day before. And I actually look at my five-day average for my diet since the last blood test. These are my goals. What do I have to eat today or tomorrow for a few days to get me closer to my goals? For example, knowing that I ate chocolate, peanut butter, basically homemade Reese's peanut butter cups with chocolate, peanut butter, and some M&Ms on Monday and Tuesday on the test day and after. So clearly my first five days or so after the test are skewed with a lot of sugar in my average daily intake and a lot more fat than I'd like. So I've got to basically play catch up to get my diet back to the goals, you know, for where I want my total, total fructose intake to be, where I want my total fat intake to be. So there is some planning involved, but it's, it's, we're talking maybe five to 10 minutes a day, maybe at the most. And then in terms of recording it all in an Excel spreadsheet, maybe five to 10 minutes a day. It's at most maybe 15 minutes a day of uh, planning for the next day. What am I going to eat and actually recording it? So in terms of interpretation, that's, I think where most people can get tripped up. And that's one reason that I've made all these videos. You know, I don't want to only do this for myself. Uh, you know, I want other people to be able to do this on their own too. Uh, so knowing what the quote unquote optimal ranges are, because the reference range isn't geared for uh, what's optimal for health and longevity. It's just basically a population-based average. And if you're too high above that or too low below that, then we got some medical issue we need to address. But even within the reference range, you may be increasing within the range over time and still be deemed healthy because you're in the normal range. So there is published data for things like all-cause mortality risk and how these biomarkers change during aging. So for most of these quote unquote big picture biomarkers, I have YouTube videos or website blogs so that people can educate themselves how to interpret these things. So that's probably where the, the most time that it will take for people to, to do is actually understanding what their blood test data even is. Now, you don't have to be a scientist to do this. You know, I try to make it easier to distill it, but uh, it, doesn't it doesn't take, take a, a lot of time. Once you get it set up the way you want it in the recording system, then basically it flows pretty easy. Is what you're saying. Well, from what I've explained, there, <laughs> there is a time, there is a time suck in here. And that involves, so once I get my blood test data and I have all of my 35 blood tests and I have all of that dietary data that corresponds to those blood tests. So after every blood test, I have to rerun the correlations between diet with the biomarkers. Now there are, you know, 20 or so 25 uh, of these big picture biomarkers that I am looking at correlations for. Then there are about 70 foods. So I look at correlations, not just between macro and micronutrients, but individual foods. So I have about 70 foods that I'm eating for any given dietary period. So I'm looking at 70 correlations between foods with 20 or so biomarkers. So for one food, I'm looking at 25 correlations, right? And, you know, so I've got big Excel spreadsheets, you know, looking at correlations between food and e each individual macro and micronutrient. 
Anyway, the long story short is that takes me anywhere from five to seven hours, but that's only once every six to eight weeks when I blood test. Okay. But that said too, for the clients that I work with, there is a time consuming process to reevaluate these correlations after blood test data. But after you've got that, it's just a matter of following the diet that's recommended based on your blood test data. And then if that turns out, it doesn't make your blood biomarkers good. Well, we reevaluate the biomarkers again to try to get closer to what's the optimal diet at the individual level. Now, something I mentioned earlier was the uh, timing of your eating, like uh, intermittent fasting has some pretty good data behind it, calorie restriction or time-restricted feeding. Do you do any type of that? Do you, how do you structure your eating? I do. And fasting may be a big part of uh, the uh, approach to minimize disease risk and potentially maximize longevity, at least if, if the animal studies, the studies in, in mice are going to translate into humans. So I, I have a video on that too, where uh, fasting was shown to drive the health and lifespan extending effect of a calorie restricted diet. So, uh, in terms of intermittent fasting for me, I try to stop eating, um, almost everything but four, three o'clock and that's Monday through Friday, because usually I pick up my daughter from school. And then when we get home, I eat something. And so that's by three o'clock, but on the weekends, I stop eating uh, a little earlier, somewhere around one or two, one to two o'clock, probably closer to two. And then my bedtime is, uh, nine 30 consistent with the sleep schedule, because that play, plays a big role in this process too. So, and I've learned that through, you know, again, trial and error. So, so I've got a six to seven hour window before bedtime where I don't eat and basically try not to drink either because, uh, you know, then I'm waking up in the middle of the night to pee and then it messes with sleep quality. So yeah, I, I now that's it. My sleep isn't perfect. That that's still a work in progress, but that's another, it's another topic, you know, another issue, but yeah. So I'm basically fasted from three o'clock, two to three o'clock, depending on the day up until, you know, uh, sleep. And then I don't eat until five to six in the morning, the next day. So it's about a, you know, what is that? A nine, 14 15, hour, 14, 15, hours. 14 to 15 hour fast every day. Yeah. Now I don't do longer fasts. I'm very active. My workouts are a mix of strength training and, you know, yeah, other stuff, but I like pushing around heavy weights, like a gorilla. And from me, for me, other people, it may be different. They may be, be able to do longer fasts, whether it's 20 hours or 40 hours, whatever it is. And their workouts maybe not affected. I, I, that's not the case for me at all. And yeah, me neither. When I have heavy work to do, like I do landscaping in my backyard where I'm lifting 200 pound stones and moving them around and stuff. If I fast for any long period of time, then you just don't have any energy. I think a lot of these people who fast three to five days or something and they say, oh, it's just fine. I, I have my doubts that they're really doing much physical exertion in that time frame because I run out of energy pretty quick on that. Same. Yeah. And, but there may be some people, you know, uh, where they can do it. That's right. Know. And my experience is that I've, uh, I'm kind of on a four hour eating window and 20 hour fasting, kind of similar to what you have, but slightly longer. And I would say I feel better on that intermittent fasting, uh, than I have ever in the past on any other type of diet. And I, I, that's my personal experience on it. I would say, yeah, it seems, it seems very beneficial. So even there, there's maybe variability. Like I can't, I can't exist on a four hour eating window. If even if the best available science said four hours is optimal people for, you know, you'll live as long as your genetics <laughs> will allow. I don't know that I could do that because for me, the way I've structured it now is it first, it, it doesn't affect my blood biomarkers. I should say that, that this eating pattern, and I've tried, you know, one meal a day where I basically fast all day and then eat everything in that three to four hour window from six to 9 PM. But that absolutely destroyed my my uh, sleep quality. I, I, you know, imagine eating a giant salad or whatever it is that I eat, all these fruits and vegetables, and then I mean, I'm waking up every hour to you know and sleep. It felt terrible. Yeah, so, I can I can understand that. Yeah. So I've switched it to eating almost all of it earlier in the day, which I do it most mostly to improve the sleep quality. But in terms of the length of the the non eating window. I've experimented with, you know, stopping eating at 11 o'clock instead of, you know, two to three o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, where can I actually, where's my cutoff? I see that if I try to stop eating too early, now I'm obsessing about food and this potentially encourages binge behavior where once I start eating, I just can't stop and it's five or 6,000 calories. So fortunately I've been able to suppress that for a while, for many, many months. So uh, for me, this, you know, this setup, you know, stopping before about two to three o'clock and having a 14 to 15 hour not eating eating window seems to work pretty well. But yeah, yeah, it's it's variable. It's variable between people. Now we mentioned, talked a little bit about your biomarkers, your blood work and things like that. Have you done any functional aging tests 
uh, you know, longevity sponsored the age meter, which is a functional aging test does a huge suite of things, you know, reaction time and, you know, different things like that and hearing and remembering hand-eye coordination. Yeah. Hand-eye coordination. What about functional aging tests? Have you done any of those like the age meter or something like that? So I haven't done anything like the age meter and cognitive function is going to be very tough. I mean, cause for older adults, it's, you know, they're standardized things, but for someone of my chronological age, I don't know that, you know, you'd notice anything, but in terms of things like hearing, I do little, you know, online tests, but I mean, that's even, it's not really clinically validated, but in term more specifically, I should say, I don't wear glasses. My eyesight's decent in terms of function. You know, I track my heart rate variability and uh, resting heart rate. And these are metrics of cardiovascular fitness. So uh, I've been tracking that for three plus years and I have a video on that too, where I show where I started and where I started wasn't sedentary. I've always been active. I've always been many hours per week. Back then it was way more than now, but I had not great values for these cardiovascular metrics in part because I was overtraining. So I've actually improved my cardiovascular fitness since 2018. And I've well-documented that in videos. Uh, so that's one aspect. And then in terms of strength, I post pull-up videos. I have a couple of them on my YouTube channel because, you know, strength declines during aging, right? And that's just one aspect. And that's not the only movement that I do. Uh, but, you know, so I did 12 consecutive high quality, full extension, full flexion, uh, I don't know, two or three years ago. And then I posted an update last year. How am I doing? And it's like a one minute video. So in terms of physical function, mobility, balance, flexibility, I haven't seen an age-related decline. Now, there is one aspect and that's lower body strength. And the reason I've mentioned that is because uh, I've had herniated discs from years of heavy squats and heavy deadlifts. And even though I was, you know, a certified personal trainer by, you know, three or four organizations, you know, 20 years ago, uh, I still was going into it with gorilla, dumb, dumb mentality, ego lifting. And yeah, I ended up with herniated discs in my back. So in terms of my muscular strength in my legs for these heavy movements, like squats and deadlifts, I'm nowhere near in terms of where I was 20 years ago, but for upper body, for sure, at least as good, uh, and body composition, um, at least as good, you know, so I haven't seen age related decrements there. So the issue of supplements, uh, from some things I've read, you're not uh, big on taking a lot of supplements. Uh, where do you fall on, uh, you know, there's a lot of new things coming out that seem to have some beneficial effects. Um, but you seem to be focusing mainly on diet, exercise, sleep, the basics. Yeah. So I'm not anti-supplements by any means. I just, I favor a targeted approach with a demonstrated need. For example, in the summer, I make it a point to get out and get full body sun exposure. So I'm getting plenty of, plenty of vitamin D and I've actually blood tested during the summer to see what my vitamin D levels are, uh, you know, above uh, the 30 cutoff. So I, I get just from sunlight, I'm good, right? So there's no need to supplement with vitamin D in the summer. And I get a nice tan too, you know, well, not now, white like a ghost. In the winter, clearly in the Northeast, I mean, uh, I'm not going to get ample sunlight and, you know, the UV isn't strong enough for my skin to make vitamin D. So I supplement with vitamin D. So, you know, targeted need. And even then I've, you know, 1000 I use a day uh, isn't just based on happenstance. I've blood tested to see how much, you know, uh, how much will affect my blood levels of circulating vitamin D. And that keeps me above the 30, you know, uh, cutoff. So that's been shown in meta-analyses to, to be, you know, once you go below that, now there's an increased all-cause mortality risk. So then things like a homocysteine, which for some reason, my homocysteine likes to go probably twice as high as it should be. Uh, and I've tried different interventions in my diet. I've tried things in the methylation pathway, whether it's supplementing with uh, TMG, trimethylglycine, or uh, you know folate, B6, methyl B12, taking all of them at the same time, taking parts at the same time. But I, I supplement now with uh, once every three days for methyl B12. Uh, in my data, folate and B6 weren't correlated with homocysteine. So I thought there's no reason to supplement them. So, but that said too, uh, I was taking a thousand micrograms per day and too much B12 seems to be correlated with more biomarkers going in the wrong direction than right, which suggests, suggested a lower dose. So now we've got that game between, okay, how much do I need to optimize homocysteine while not affecting the other ones? So I'll for the last test, it was once every three days, so 300 or so micrograms per day, but it didn't budge my homocysteine, which at about 10 isn't bad, but I've had values far lower than that. So you certainly aren't against that. trying new therapeutics or new supplements that could bend your data in the right direction. If you if, tried something out and it, and it correlated well with lower age, you would definitely not be against taking it. 
Yeah, but not just lower age, but you know, the full composite of biomarkers, right? So, you know, uh, even if it's just biological age and there are nine biomarkers in that composite, I want to make sure the net effect is positive, right? It, but that said too, you know, B12 is a dietary nutrient and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm eating fish every day, I eat sardines every day. And I've actually increased my intake of that. It seems to be better associated with my better biomarkers, but, uh, so I'm not, I shouldn't be B12 deficient. I try to go after first with diet, right? Because for me, diet is the foundation. If, if you're not optimizing your biomarkers first with diet, and then you go in with supplements, what happens when your body reaches a tolerance for that supplement? It's like the type two diabetic that's being given insulin. Well, they're already insulin resistant and their insulin levels are already high. Giving them more might reduce circulating blood levels of glucose, but I don't know that that's the best approach. The best approach would be to go after the underlying causes. So I try to go after everything as much as I can through diet, but for things like obviously vitamin D, there's no way, no way I can get enough through diet and in the winter. And B12, it looks like even though I'm getting ample amounts of my diet, it just may not be enough. And that said too, sleep, I don't have problems falling asleep. But three hours, three to five hours after I'll wake up. And then it's like every two hours, I'll, I'll wake up until it's time to get up for the day. What so, what that is, I have the exact same sleep pattern. No matter, I take sleep supplements and I try to do the pattern before sleep every night, do the same thing and stretch out and do different things to and, and turn down the lights and everything to try and get sleep. But I'm very similar to you. Most nights it's two and a half hours, three hours of a, of a solid sleep. And then the rest of the night is restless. Now, even on that short of sleep, which I know is not supposed to be good. I get up the next day. I function. I can go work out. I do all the things I want to do. I don't really need to take a nap during the day. Um, but I'm worried about it as far as aging goes, because in most large population studies, the people who aren't getting enough sleep at night are aging a lot faster. So I'm yeah. not sure what uh, to think about that. I'm sure it's on your mind a little bit as well. Yeah, a lot, actually. So in your case, it sounds like it's not negatively affecting your quality of life. But for me, the more often that I wake up, even though I don't have a problem falling asleep, the more often that I wake up, I can stay there and you know basically try to med meditate myself into sleep, but it doesn't always work. So then I'm an hour or two some days in sleep debt. And for me, it does affect my mental and you know mental and physical function. If I have a workout for that day, if I don't take a nap, the workout's out. Now, if the workout is out because I didn't get good sleep quality, if I take too many days off in, be in between workouts, now my strength is going to start to decline because I, I know exactly how many days I can go without doing a movement where I'm starting to get weaker over time. So for me, it, it, it's a definite potential problem. What I've noticed though is... Uh, and this goes back to the idea of targeted supplementation. Uh, in the past, I've taken melatonin and uh, taken it before bed and, you know, taking it in the lowest dose possible, one milligram tablets, but I'd wake up in the morning feeling more exhausted than not taking it. So for the longest time, I basically didn't think about taking it, but then I thought, you know, what if I just took a small bite off of it? So instead of getting one milligram, maybe I'm getting 200 micrograms, a fifth of the one milligram dose and not taking it before I go to bed, because that's not a problem. It's these in the middle of the night wake up. So when I did that, it actually, it helps me stay asleep better. Now, interestingly, when I first tried that about 10 days ago, and I took that little bite off, you know, one or 200 micrograms, I usually get between seven and eight hours of sleep. When I'm in sleep that I get below seven, six and a half, six total sleep time. I got 10 hours and I mean, asleep for 10 hours. And the only other time I get asleep for 10 hours is Calorie intake for me is associated with longer sleep. So if I have had a 6,000 calorie day, I'll sleep for 10 hours. Uh, but granted, that's going to be terrible for longevity. If I have to eat 6,000 calories to get extra long sleep. So now the drawback to this approach though is during the week, I can do that on the weekends. And I'm actually looking forward to sleeping 10 hours tomorrow if I can, because clearly tomorrow, tomorrow and Sunday, I don't have to worry about a schedule. But during the week, I feel more nervous to take the melatonin if I wake up an hour later than I normally would, now I've only got 20 minutes to make food for my daughter, to prepare my food for the day. I can't, I just physically can't do it before, you know, starting the day. So, so it's almost like I'm in a moderate sleep that during the week now and trying to catch up on the weekends, which is still a win because prior to this melatonin experiment, it was sleep that during the week and sleep that also on the weekends and kind of feeling subpar, but grinding through it. So 
Let's talk a little bit about uh, the near future uh, experimentation that you might be doing, some of the strategies you're thinking about here over the next year or two based on your data. In terms of uh, experiments that are coming up in the future, this goes back to the idea of rapamycin too as a supplement, right? So fungal infections in blood, so blood bloodstream infections with bacteria, fungi, and virus increase during aging. So older adults are hospitalized at about a 10 to 15 fold incidence when compared with bloodstream infections with various microbes, when compared with people that are younger, less than 40. Now, one of those fungi is candida. Rapamycin is well known to kill candida. So if I had a documented bloodstream infection, I'd probably take rapamycin until I've reduced candida to you know some normal level where it should be. Even then, I wouldn't know what was optimal because there is a blood microbiome. I mean, this is a whole nother another aspect. But this goes back to now, now rapamycin is not on my short-term radar, but as I mentioned, my uh, Levine's test biological age was an average of 12 years younger for 15 tests, you know, over those 15 tests. Now that I've hit 16 years younger, can I maintain a 16 year younger biological age just going forward? And knowing that I can get there says that it's possible. It's just a matter of tweaking the variables in order to be able to stay there. So that's the challenge now. But at some point, one has to say, how many blood tests and how much diet tracking do I need where I can actually get to the truth of what the best diet is for me and to optimize my biomarkers? Now, I've done it the hard way because I didn't see any other trailblazers you know, doing this before me. So it looks like 35 tests may be what I needed, but for others, they could probably get there way faster. Maybe half as many tests they could probably get there. So. All right. And then you mentioned a couple of ways people can follow you throughout this podcast. Uh, you have a YouTube channel. Is there a specific name or can people just search Dr. Michael Lustgarten? That's it right there. What's the address of your blog? Same thing, michaellustgarten.com. I'm on Patreon. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I'm all over And if you get some uh, results from your sarcopenia research, that would be on the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging website. I imagine they would have a press release or something about that. PubMed is where you can find my uh, academic publications too. Great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. Cool. Thanks, Justin. Unfortunately, a lot of life extension news is hype. New studies in worms, flies, and mice lead to much speculation about the latest or greatest supplement or therapy. As we see from this interview with Dr. Lusgarten, there is an incredible amount you can do with small adjustments to your diet and lifestyle. Start there. It's free. It works. Get healthy. And then make plans for trying out more speculative rejuvenation strategies in the future. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.